Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It was December of 1927 and night was about to fall off of the coast of Massachusetts. A Navy S-4 submarine was conducting submerged trials and As it surfaced to the water, it actually collided with the United States Coast Guard destroyer. The submarine quickly sank down to the bottom in about 110 feet of water. Lifeboats were lowered from the Coast Guard vessel immediately, but all that was found was a small amount of oil and just some air bubbles that were coming up. Rescue operations were started immediately, but there was very little that could be done. There was a nor'easter that was upon them, and the underwater currents blocked any attempts to rescue the six known survivors who were trapped in the forward torpedo room. Now, the men had been able to exchange a series of signals with the rescue divers by tapping on the hull of the boat. And using Morse code, the six men slowly tapped out the question, Is there any hope? Hope is a central part of life. Hope for a better future is what we all want. Hope tugs at our hearts. Hope that this life that we have right now is not all there is. Hope for life. Hope for eternity, to be at peace with God. I believe this hope is actually what drove the Ethiopian eunuch to make the long journey up to Jerusalem to worship. Look at our first two verses again with me, if you would, in the book of Acts. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose. And went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, he was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet, an angel of the Lord. On this occasion, this was an angel sent by the Lord. Angels have never personally experienced God's grace. They cannot witness from experience. And so God has given that commission to us, to men. Luke reminds us that the road down to the south from Jerusalem to Gaza, you can see Gaza on the bottom, it was desert. It was desolate down there. This was the road less traveled, a desolate region, a dry region. Gaza would actually have been the last place to load up on water before the desert on the way down to Egypt. It was about 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem. In perfect obedience, Philip, he went. And he comes across a man from Ethiopia. 
Ethiopia then was not the same as today. It was much further south, down by the Sudan today. This was a large and very powerful country in Central Africa. So far south that the Roman government actually thought it to be as the end of the earth. Meaning the outer limits of the known world. Now something had driven this man to Jerusalem. Something had driven him to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to worship the God of the Hebrew people. Follow this with me. Out of all the people living in that day, out of all the Hebrew people, and out of all the Gentiles that needed Christ, the Lord specifically sent Philip to this man. Why? Because this man was searching for the truth about the Lord. This man was seeking God. It was at least 750 miles one way by chariot to worship at Jerusalem. That was at least a 30-day trip. If he spent a month in Jerusalem, and let's just say he did, then you would have a return trip. And you're looking at about a quarter of a year to travel to Jerusalem to worship God. But just who was this man? It starts back in Genesis. Take a look with me in Genesis 9, verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Don't miss this next part. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Genesis chapter 10 goes on to teach us that one of the sons of Ham was a man named Cush. Noah, Ham, Cush, in that order. Noah, Ham, Cush, in that order. Ethiopia, in the time of Acts, was known as the kingdom of Cush. Meaning that back in Acts, what we have is a representative of the family of Ham receiving the gospel of Christ. Cush, or Ethiopia, was south of Egypt. Now it's obviously hot down there. And so quite naturally, over time, the people began to worship the sun. And the king of Ethiopia was considered to be descended from the sun, thought of as holy by his people. Now he didn't actually rule the country. He was too busy being holy. He was too busy being the God that they kind of worshipped. So this was left to the queen mother, known by the title Candace. And Luke mentions this, exactly this, in the middle of verse 27. He says, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Candace of the Ethiopians was like that of Pharaoh in Egypt or Caesar in Rome. This was a dark-skinned man. This dark-skinned man had authority. And Luke adds that he had charge of the treasury of the queen. Today, we would basically call him the Secretary of Treasury. He was not traveling alone. His servants were with him. And he would have been traveling in style, sitting in a chariot driven by oxen. Covered to protect him from the sun, of course. But notice that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was looking for hope. This eunuch had just been to Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish religion, but he was leaving still in the dark. This was probably a man that had been emasculated to serve as an official in the royal court. 
In the ancient world, you got to remember that slaves were often castrated as boys in order to basically put them one day in charge of the finances of the kingdom simply because eunuchs were known to be a little more trustworthy, a little more loyal to the rulers of the land. So by this time in history, though, it didn't always mean that they had been physically castrated, but I'm guessing that this man had been. And because he was a eunuch, he would not have been allowed into the temple because it was forbidden by the Old Testament law. He couldn't become a Jewish proselyte allowed into the temple, but he could go in the synagogues, read the scriptures and pray, but nothing else. That was about it. Now, he had traveled at this point for hundreds of miles to worship at the temple of God, but he wouldn't have been let in. And this is based on Deuteronomy 23. So did he make it into the outer court of the temple? We don't know. Did he meet with the apostles or some representatives of Christ? Again, we don't know. Did he hear the preaching of the gospel there? Again, we don't know. But he left with a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. Remember that back in the third and in the second centuries, BC, Hebrew scholars, they got together in Egypt and they understood that most everyone was either speaking Greek at this point or they soon would be. And so it was decided to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Why not translate it so more people could read it? And that, of course, is known as the Septuagint. And this is exactly what this eunuch would have been reading. A copy of Isaiah. He was reading from a scroll on which was recorded the words of the prophet Isaiah. But what do you think he was reading at this point? Now, we like to jump to Isaiah 53, and that is what he was reading when Philip catches up to him in a little bit. But I have another guess. Put yourself in his shoes and then think of the words of Isaiah 56. And remember, in Isaiah 56, it's looking forward to the coming kingdom of Christ. This is the future, starting in the millennium after the second coming of Christ. And think of the impact if you were a eunuch, if you had been castrated, what this text would have on you. Look at what it says in Isaiah 56. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let this eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. And it goes on, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer, not just for the Jewish people, but for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I'll gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. You see what I'm saying is this. If I was a eunuch and I had a copy of Isaiah, this is what I would have been reading. Listen to Deuteronomy 23. 
It says, he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. The Old Testament excluded eunuchs and foreigners from the assembly of the Lord. But Isaiah, it offered hope for the future. That in the coming kingdom of Christ, there would be a better future for all people, all believers. Look at the promise to the eunuchs again in verse 5 of Isaiah, which I just read. Even to them I will give in my house and with my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's a great promise back in that day. A eunuch obviously had no way of passing on his name, simply because obviously a eunuch was not able to have children. But here we read in Isaiah 56 that the Lord will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. If I was a eunuch that had just been denied full access to worship at the temple, this is the passage that I would have turned to at some point in time for encouragement. So go back in our story in Acts. Philip takes this step of faith and he obeys the angel sent by the Lord. And once again, he gets to this deserted region. There is this man with this entourage going along, reading from this scroll of Isaiah. And then watch what happens now, starting in verse 29. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him. I almost titled the message, Run, Philip, Run. Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? If you ever see someone out there reading the Bible, this is just a great way to introduce the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have an open door. Notice. Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. This would have been a carriage pulled by an ox. His servants would have followed behind him on foot, not moving much faster than a walking pace easy for Philip to catch up with. So here's the man reading aloud. You read aloud, why? Because the ancient manuscripts, the letters were so just jammed together on the scrolls, it made them very hard to read and you kind of had to decipher it. Notice how hungry this man was for the word. He invited Philip to climb up and explain it to him. Picture, if you will, a large manufacturing plant that comes to town. We can put it in Wasilla. We can put it in Palmer. We can put it wherever you want to put it. And we don't have a lot of factories here in Alaska. So when this plant comes in, everyone's excited. Why? Because it means jobs. Everyone's excited about this. And this plant, it's determined, is going to make shoes. American-made. American-made. they got to be better. And because of where we're located, they can be sent all over the world. And a lot of hours is put in. A lot of money is put in to make this plant a reality. People are getting hired. Salaries have to be paid. Machines have to be bought. And all the materials you need to make shoes... It all has to be brought in, brought up on a barge, and imported. And finally, 
This plant is in full operation. Hundreds of workers moving back and forth, back and forth. And one day the president asked the production manager, how many shoes have we made so far? None, comes the answer. Well, the president's a little confused by this. So he asks again, and sure enough, the answer comes again that no shoes, zero shoes have been made. But we've been in operation for two years, two years and still no shoes. How is this possible? And that's right, the manager says, no shoes. But hey, we've been busy, really busy, so busy that we're tired, that we're worn out. What would happen? Well, heads would roll. Jobs would be lost. But somehow, this becomes acceptable if it's a church. A ton of activity going on. Men and women working hard. The budget grows. But the goal, friends, is to make disciples. And it starts with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been estimated that for born-again Christians in the United States, 10 years ago, it used to be that 95% of all Christians never led one person to salvation in Christ. Now it's worse. Now it's 98%. 98% of born-again Christians in the United States of America never lead one single person to Christ, not in a year, I'm saying in their entire lives. I hope you're not in that number. I hope you have the privilege of sharing your faith often and leading people to Christ. You know, ministry is a word we slap on anything a church does. I see it differently. I see ministry as meeting real needs, sharing Christ, sharing his word in love. You see, when we have experienced in our hearts the unsurpassed worth of Jesus Christ, then with joy... We begin to proclaim, I count everything as loss because of the greater worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Christ is going to be glorified in this world when Christians are so satisfied in him that they become willing to go down and lay their lives for others. In mercy, in missions, in sharing the message of hope, willing to chase down a chariot in the desert if need be. Christ will be magnified among the nations the moment Christians are willing to lose everything on earth and say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Philip was a man that was bored with the scriptures. The scriptures didn't bore him. He knew them. He cared about them. He studied them. And when God called, he was ready. And along comes Philip. And the eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53, the great prophecy. You guys know this prophecy of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. A vivid, brutal depiction foretold of the suffering, the humiliation, and the exaltation of Christ. The picture of the slaughtered lamb evokes the image of the crucifixion of Christ. The lamb before its shearer is silent, just as Christ, according to the Gospels, He remained silent before the men that accused him. He was abused by the Sanhedrin, ridiculed by Herod, scourged by Pilate, scoffed at by the soldiers. Jesus was deprived of justice as men made false accusations against him, claiming that he spoke blasphemy for stating that he is the Christ. And the simple dignity that we all take for Granted, the simple dignity that comes from being dressed with clothing was stripped away. 
the earthly ministry of Christ was cut off by his death, leaving it to those that will follow after him to proclaim the message of redemption. Now, at the last part of these verses, speaking of his life taken from the earth, it refers to Christ being taken up in glory after the resurrection, exalted to the right hand of the Father. But consider with me, if you will, the sovereign hand of God, the timing of God in this passage. It wasn't just that Philip had to catch up and run and catch up with the eunuch. It's not just that. It's not just that he had to get 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem. The Spirit of God brought these men together at the right time when the eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53. So notice the question in verse 34. It's absolutely a great question. Profound, actually. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other men? How many people have asked this question over the centuries? Now the Hebrew scholars debated this very question. Their take was either the prophet Isaiah referred to his own suffering, or they thought maybe he referred to the suffering of the nation of Israel. Well, Jesus answered this question, didn't he? Because he came in the Gospels, quoting Isaiah 53, in Luke 22, he said this. He said, for I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And this is a quote from Isaiah 53. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And notice the wording of verse 35 in our text. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture... He preached Jesus to him. This was just a starting point. This was the beginning. Philip preached Jesus to him. So they come to some water in verse 36. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? He heard the message of Christ's sacrifice. His faith led him to obedience in the waters of baptism. Notice. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water to be baptized. He baptized him. You know, baptism is intended to be a portrait of the new birth. It reminds me of the old story of a teenage boy who had come to faith in Christ. And his parents had him baptized before this years and years before as a baby by sprinkling but now that he had faith he wanted to be baptized by immersion well the teenage boy explained to his father that going under the water is actually a picture of death and burial and coming up out of the water is a picture of rising up to the newness of life he explained that you can only get that picture with submersion but his father ignored them he ignored this conversation. He just ignored his son. And a few days later, their dog died. And the father, he told his son to go out behind the barn and bury it. And then the boy got an idea. He took just a little bit of dirt, a handful of dirt, and he sprinkled it on the dog. And then he left. Well... When his dad saw this, he told his son, I told you to bury it. Put that dog underneath the ground. And you can imagine, as soon as the words left his mouth, it sunk home. The father got it. Because he understood that baptism is to show outwardly the inner profession of faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. 
And the word for baptism always, always carries the idea of total immersion. We see this with Philip and the eunuch. Listen, baptism is not a sacrament. Baptism is not a sacrament. Many groups teach this today. A sacrament, if you look at what it means, a sacrament by its very definition is a means of receiving the grace of God. Now that may sound good, but there's problems with that. They call it a means of receiving the grace of God. A sacrament is a means of earning favor, a means of earning your salvation with God. Baptism doesn't make you a child of God. It never can. It's not a sacrament of the church. It is immersion and it is an outward sign of obedience for those with faith, those who believe, those with faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is for believers, not for babies. It's for where believers publicly demonstrate that they have identified with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Baptism proclaims this message to the world. So they went down to the water. Even though this is desert, streams come down. If you're wondering where the water came from, Walter, streams come down from the mountains there. And once the eunuch was baptized, notice what happens in our last two verses. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. This is just a wild text if you study it. This is fascinating. You can see on our map again that the Spirit of God caused Philip to be transported to this city which was to the north. Caught away is used of Philip in verse 39. It's the same wording as in 1 Thessalonians 4 for caught up at the rapture of the church. The more I look at this passage, I honestly tend to think that this was a supernatural removal and delivery of Philip by God. It gives the impression in this text that one minute Philip was there. The next minute he was gone. Where did he go? And the Spirit of God directed Philip to the coastal cities further to the north to continue his witness for Jesus Christ. Now, no doubt this had to leave an impression On the eunuch that God was at work. So the eunuch rejoiced, demonstrating the Spirit of God at work in his life. And according to one account we have from church history, this eunuch went on to be a missionary to his people. In verse 40, it leaves off with Philip arriving in Caesarea, which it seems from what we know, Philip seems to have settled there. Why do I say that? Because it was there that Philip appeared in Acts when Paul visited with him in Acts 21, some 20 years later. But I know this, wherever Philip found himself, Philip had one thing on his mind, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pauline Jacoby, she was 92 years old at the time, a Christian for many, many decades, a member in her Baptist church for over 70 years. Pauline was sitting in a Walmart parking lot in Dyersburg, Pennsylvania, and she put her groceries into the side of her back seat of her Toyota Corolla, and it was getting dark, and people were walking by, so she didn't want to startle them. So she said she waited to start her car. 
And just about when she was going to start her car and head home, the front passenger door just opened up on her car and a tall man, a very scruffy looking man, a scary looking man, got in the car and sat right next to her. Keep in mind, she's 92 years old. He said to her, give me your money. Pauline said, no, you're not getting my money. All she had was $10. Again, give me your money. Pauline, no, you're not getting my money. The third time he said to her that if she didn't give him her money, he was going to kill her. Pauline's response, if you kill me, I'm going straight to heaven. And then she told the man that he was headed to hell. Listen to what she said next. You look like you've had an awful time in this world. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to hell. Hell is much worse than anything here. Jesus is sitting in the car with me. He'll protect me if you kill me. I'll go to heaven. After a little bit, she got to talking with him. And she got to know his name. And she said to him, Ricky, would you like to go to heaven? And he said, yes, I sure would. But I'm afraid that the Lord won't take me. Yes, he will. He'll take you if you believe. He'll save you right here and now. All you have to do is believe in him. Accept him as your savior. He said he didn't know how to pray. Oh, you can pray anytime you want. Anytime, anywhere, she told him. And then Jacob, she actually offered to give the man what little bit of money she had in her purse. She said, quote, I reached into my purse and opened the clutch bag and pulled out what I think was the $10 bill. And I said to him, Ricky, I'm going to give you money. Don't spend it on liquor. Get something to eat. And she said that Ricky, at this point, he hesitated. He kind of backed off. And then she said, no, but I want you to have it. You were not going to take it from me. But I'll give it to you. Well, the man started to cry. And then he leaned over and gave her a kiss on the cheek. And obviously shaken, he opened the door and walked off into the night. When interviewed by TV reporters, Jacoby was quoted as saying that she frequently prays for ways to bring friends and families closer to the Lord. This was it. Did you ever wonder what actually happened in verse 39 that the spirit took Philip away I mean why did that happen well quite simply either way one way or another Philip was no longer needed his work with the eunuch was done and it was time for him to move on so the spirit of God took him away but if we look at verse 40 we find Philip preaching the gospel his work wasn't finished and friends neither is ours Philip was found preaching in all the cities. And I ask you this question this morning. How will you be found? How will you be found? When the angel told Philip to start walking south, what did he do? He walked south. When the spirit told Philip to go to the chariot, Philip ran to the chariot. Philip didn't know all the details. He didn't check his calendar. He didn't see if he had an appointment that day, if he could do it. He went. And I suggest to you that we need to get on that road. Whether we know where it's leading or not, if it's the right road, God's going to open doors for us to share Jesus Christ. And maybe you don't think you can be like Philip. 
What about being like little old Pauline? I want to spend my time with people like her. I really do. People that care about the gospel. People that are focused not on the here and now, but on the eternal. Pauline went to be home with the Lord just a couple of years ago. She was found faithful to the end. And so I challenge you with this. This is my prayer. Lord, may I be more like her because I believe the gospel. And I do believe it is the answer. It is the reason in my life for the hope that lies within. And I pray you have that same hope this morning. Return to the Word is a listener-supported ministry. And truthfully, it is people like you, those who listen each week, that God uses to help us meet the expense of a ministry dedicated to reaching people for the gospel of Christ and the teaching of God's Word. And so I want to take a moment to thank those that support the work, even those that give $5 a month or $10 a month, because those smaller donations, they add up. And we thank you because it keeps the programs free of charge so that others may learn of God's amazing grace. If you'd like to help us out, you can find out more at returntotheword.com. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.